0: Waffle Easters.
1: Hello you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment With a slice of cake.
0: My name's Chris Morrison.
1: And my name's Jane Secker.
0: And we're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks. And we run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering.
1: And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an amazing archive of chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright.
0: So we're very pleased to be joined today by our guest, who is Julia Rader, who is former MEP and now strategic litigator for civil rights organization in Germany. So thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks.
0: Yeah, no worries. We are very, we're always very excited to talk to people, but um, you're a bit of a a legend on on the copyright scene. Uh, You've been involved in some major changes um, in in copyright law in the European Union, which have major impacts around the world. So we we definitely want to be uh, kind of digging into some of that. But what we always like to start with um, is to get from our guests an idea of why they got involved in copyright. What was their background? So for you, Julia, why did you get involved in copyright in the first place?
2: Right. So my career of uh, copyright infringement started really early, actually. (laughs) So uh, when I was in school, um, I was reading the Harry Potter books. I was always sort of the same age as Harry Potter. And um, so in those early years, Uh, German students were waiting very eagerly for the new books to come out. Mm. And it would always take about a year before they would be translated into German. And so I got involved in a volunteer project called Harry auf Deutsch, uh, which would basically do fan translations of the books as they were coming out uh, in English, basically translating them to German, uh, not very professionally at all. It was mostly older students translating for the benefit of younger students um, which was of course completely illegal and um, I was uh, quite upset that uh, our wonderful translation was eventually uh, had to be taken down by request of the publisher. I thought that was unfair because I didn't feel that any uh, sales were prevented by this. I'm pretty sure that everybody involved bought both the English and the German books uh, when they were available. But that's sort of how I started getting into the whole topic. And then it just mm. continued through university, um, where I was always frustrated about all the things that you couldn't do digitally that might be allowed if you were doing physical photocopies of academic texts and so on.
0: Mm. That's really so interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and uh, interestingly, we have um, Harry Potter um, fan fiction as a theme coming through because we we both uh, spoke to Caroline Ball recently, who's a, a librarian in the UK, who also has quite a history in um, Harry Potter, well, fan fiction. And we talked a lot about the Harry Potter stuff. We did. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So you uh, you found yourself interested in copyright. Uh, having an awareness of these kind of issues around digital and access to information at the time you were going um, through university. But you found yourself uh, moving into politics and and becoming a a politician. So can you talk to us about that process?
2: Yeah. So I was always uh, politically active, I think. So Mm. I joined uh, the Social Democrats in Germany when I was 16 and I was active there for a while but got very upset with their Internet policy because basically the party wasn't really interested in what young people had to say about the Internet. It was mostly seen as a threat. And, um, well, I sort of grew up uh, perceiving the Internet as this great room of opportunity where you could... Uh, Find new friends, find new hobbies, uh, learn about all kinds of things. And so uh, when the Pirate Party started gaining traction in Germany, I joined up with them. And after a couple of years of uh, running their youth organization, I ran for the European Parliament in 2014, uh, just after I finished my university degree and actually got elected on a copyright reform platform, which was quite exciting.
1: Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably wasn't that much after that. I think we probably first met you. I think we met you at the SILIP conference, I think probably in 2017, something like that. And you were speaking there about some of the work you've been doing in the European Parliament. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Right. I think at the time
2: I was making a call for um, copyright academics to get more involved in the policy debate, because uh, what I saw in Parliament was that uh, the sorts of ideas for copyright reform that were coming out of academia were much more progressive than what politicians were actually talking about. And I was quite surprised to see that that a lot of the policy demands of the Pirate Party, which was sort of seen as very far on one end of the spectrum of uh, acceptable opinion, Actually, quite often coincided with exactly what uh, academics were recommending. Basically, that copyright law is too long, that it's too complicated for regular people to understand. And if you want people to follow the law, it has to be designed in a way that is accessible to to regular people. Um, There was also an initiative from academics to make one European copyright law instead of 28 or now 27 national laws, because I feel that um, a lot of these national fragmentations also contribute to the confusion. Uh, You see quite often people uh, on the Internet even referring to U.S. uh, copyright law and saying, oh, this and this is covered by fair use, because it's just... not understandable to regular people who um, communicate with each other across borders. And obviously, this is something that the European Union wants to encourage, that people form connections and uh, exchange culture across borders. Um, But that the legal system is actually not designed to facilitate that. And so that was something that I really tried to, to push forward, that there should be more mandatory exceptions for copyright in the European Union, that there should be less geo-blocking, where, basically, uh, certain content is not available in your country. And, um, yeah, those ended up being some of the policy demands that uh, I try to um, bring majorities together for. So I did a, a parliamentary report that asked for some modest uh, copyright reforms uh, in 2015 and then some of the results of that ended up um, in the, the DSM copyright directive that was adopted at the end of the term. But uh, unfortunately also some uh, rather, I think, lobby-driven changes to copyright law uh, such as a new uh, neighboring right for press publishers and the introduction of mandatory upload filters that I was very critical of.
0: Yeah, so mm-hmm. we're definitely wanting to to dig into to some of that but before we before we get into the details of that directive that that uh, came as a result of that that work and and the report that you put into it I wanted to um go back to that that uh the fact that you were appointed to to look into that area um was i think um there were certainly concerns from the the, uh, the the creative cultural industries about about I think what we're seeing you know you, the name of the party is the Pirate Party I know that that is in itself um, something of a, 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 a not a not a joke as such but it's deliberately designed I think to 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 get people's reaction to it but but can, can you tell us a bit about that, that you know the, the Pirate Party's approach to progressive um, politics and democracy, because am I right in thinking that concepts like liquid democracy and and different ways of actually going to communities that are impacted by by laws and and, and political movements that, that, you know, that's part of what this was about, rather than just simply attacking something that, you know, was was regarded as a common good?
2: Sure. Uh, I should probably say first as a disclaimer that I'm not a member of the Pirate Party anymore. Mm. But uh, it is true that sort of the the common theme of all the different Pirate Parties that exist um, all over the world is uh, to fight for digital rights. Um, mm. And this includes the right to privacy, which was a big topic uh, in Sweden, where the, the first Pirate Party was founded, that uh, there was quite a lot of crackdown on um, the anonymous use of the Internet as a means to uh, enforce copyright. Um, and in other countries, like for example, the the most successful party at the moment uh, is uh, in Czech Republic, where uh, their most important policy topic is actually anti-corruption and transparency, mm. um, which is really about a different way of doing politics um, that is um, relying less on on secrecy, trying to get more citizen participation. And liquid democracy is one of the um, means that was developed by people who were closely involved uh, with the pirate party to try and um, c- try to basically take the best of uh, representative democracy and direct democracy and try to merge them. Uh, mm. with the with the support of modern technology. Interesting. That, that makes yeah. a lot of
0: sense. Um, yeah. um, you're mentioning direct democracy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hedge around the B word. I'm sure we'll have to come to it eventually <laughs> about what's happened in the UK. But I, I think the the thing that I, I wanted to uh, note about the, the work that you did on that report that I think was particularly good to see was the, the transparency and the way that you very clearly um wanted to make it clear all the people that were coming to see you to talk about what was going into that report and that being really open and transparent about the 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 lobbying um and the influence that, that there is in um in in the european parliament but but as we see in governments all around the world this is this is a major issue for 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 us to deal with isn't it because copyright in the 20th century was something that most people didn't really have to concern themselves with. It was something that was tied up in the world of media and, and broadcasting and publishing. Uh, but now these are things that impact all of us. So those rights impact all of us. And so therefore we want people representing us who are understanding, you know, what, what the opportunities are with these new technologies.
2: Thanks. Yeah, my idea with that was that uh, obviously lobbying has a lot of influence on the kinds of policies that are uh, adopted by parliaments. And this isn't entirely a bad thing. I mean, I think it makes sense that if there is a particular... Um, interest group that perceives a problem with the way the law functions, politicians are not necessarily going to know about that. But the problem is, if you don't keep track of which lobbyists you're meeting with, then you're not going to be aware of the biases that might come with that. So, for example, if I just accepted every Um, meeting request from lobbyists on copyright, I would have talked to drastically more rights holders' organizations than users' organizations. And so I was very deliberate in making uh, this information public, like who contacted me, who sent me position papers. And then I tried to create a balance in the meetings that I actually uh, took to make sure that um, the users of copyright, for example, libraries, would be able to also make their voices heard. Because um, I I always like to say that a lot of the things that we take for granted in the physical world um, would probably never be introduced in the digital world because they would be seen as too radical. Like, for example, the idea that you can just go to a library and lend out a book for free is Mm -hmm. seen as uh, natural and important for access to culture and knowledge and uh, social equity but then suggesting that the same should be true for ebooks is suddenly seen as this uh, radical idea and so i think it's it's always important to question the narratives that that we hear from from any given interest group and make sure that we hear all sides of the issue
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah so you, um, you you wrote that report, and as you mentioned, there were things that came in um, uh, as a result of that process of lawmaking. Um, and we now have, I say we, because I think the world as a whole, even if those of us in the UK are no longer part of the EU, I think we are all um, are going to uh, experience the impact of this digital single market directive, which is coming in, uh, which is this year, isn't it? That we're 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 expecting to see that in put into the laws of all the member states. So, can you give us a kind of a, a an update on where we are right now and on what are the changes that we're going to see?
2: Right, yeah. So the DSM copyright directive is a really mixed bag. It's probably the largest EU copyright reform in the last 20 years. And so it includes a lot of different things. So some things are in there that my report actually asked for. Um, for example, the exception for parody which uh, so far was uh, not mandatory for member states to implement is now going to become man- mandatory. this is good news for Germany. Uh, we didn't have a parody exception so far probably because Germans don't have a sense of humor I don't know but it was
1: definitely <laughs> gonna say that
2: <laughs> It was definitely an oversight so um, that's that's one of the demands that made it into the final bill but also um, the protection of the public domain so anything that is not protected by copyright right, um, because there were some uh, problems with uh, court rulings that uh, awarded protections, for example, to photographs of public domain paintings, and then mm. you would not be able to use them in Wikipedia. And so um, one of the demands of my report that actually made it into the final directive um is that once something is in the public domain, like a a painting or another visual artwork, then any reproductions like photographs and so on of that work should also be in the public domain. Um, There are also new exceptions uh, for um, digital teaching, for example, which is certainly good news now uh, in the middle of the pandemic, because so far every country in the EU had its own rules for Um, the use of copyrighted materials in the classroom and this would not work in the online environment because suddenly you know you might have students who are temporarily participating in class from a different EU member state and these Mm. sorts of things um, were just not possible under the old regime. So those are some of the positive changes I would say. the the two main problems that I see with the directive is, on the one hand, uh, the introduction of a new neighboring right for press publishers, which is um, something that uh, is, in my view, unnecessary because uh, journalistic articles are already protected by copyright. And is also potentially dangerous because it could award protection to very short parts of texts um, that could lead to confusion because uh, common phrases that might end up being protected, that people come up with independently of each other. And perhaps uh, the most controversial part of the directive, which led to uh, huge street protests, especially in Germany, is uh, the infamous Article 17, which um, makes certain commercial online platforms like YouTube directly um, liable for copyright infringements that are committed by their users unless they try to get licenses and uh, block copyright infringements. And this um, Article 17 is causing a lot of problems in the national implementation because um, as uh, both myself and a lot of academics and uh, fundamental rights activists have pointed out for many years, there is no technology that can distinguish automatically between a legal parody or a quotation on the one hand and a copyright infringement on the other hand. And the way that the directive tried to solve this problem is they just wrote into the law, basically the platforms have to try to block all the infringement but keep all the legal content online. And now it's up to every single member states to try to figure out how to do that because the technology is not able to do that.
1: Mm. And it's going to potentially lead to a lot of takedown notices isn't it i think and uh, you know or, or material just being removed from platforms that's that's actually you know valid under some sort of copyright exception so
2: right um yeah i think you you had uh, ben marsh on the podcast recently who yeah. talked about just that issue i mean yeah. um i think the uk does have uh copyright exceptions for things like parodies and remixes we but do. the upload yeah. filter is just um Tend to block it anyway. We had a similar case in Germany just uh, about a week or two ago um, where an artist made a song that is basically about what you're allowed to say. Um, it's like about the, the limits of artistic freedom. And um, so there was a YouTube video by a lawyer who was basically explaining the song text line by line. Uh, from a legal point of view and explaining why the thing that the artist was saying is covered by artistic freedom and this video was blocked which is kind of ironic because uh, the the real really the message that the song was trying to say that there are these uh, uh, freedoms were kind of counteracted by an automated upload filter and probably the artist had nothing to do with it. I don't think that they deliberately blocked it. it's just that um, mm the companies that are in charge of uh, enforcing the copyright and that often hold uh, uh, some of the rights in the music recordings, just put them into the upload filter Mm. and then everything gets blocked without really checking whether it's uh, an infringement or a legal use.
0: Yeah. It it creates a very interesting situation here, doesn't it? This law has come about because the creative industries, particularly the music industry, I would say is concerned about, their content being on YouTube and similar platforms. So they want to find some way of regulating that in order to to avoid the, the big tech companies simply having all the content there and getting all that advertising revenue, typically advertising revenue that they, they use to fund those services. Um, but but the, 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 what happens when you have a law that, that requires filtering to be put in place is that you, rather than actually relying using the, the, what copyright law says and, and, and all those exceptions and having those in place, you're relying on artificial intelligence mm-hmm. to make those decisions. And in fact, you're kind of locking in, baking in, if you like, the tech solutions that are currently there. So that that causes a problem, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, just to give you an example of how Uh, some of the member states are trying to square the circle. Uh, In Germany, we are currently debating the national bill that will um, implement the copyright directive into German law. And so the government is trying to to, um, fulfill those two conflicting obligations that the legal content has to stay online and the illegal content has to be blocked by introducing quantitative thresholds. So they're saying, okay... Non-commercial uses that are shorter than 15 seconds and that are less than 50% of the protected work and that are a combination with other content are considered to be presumably legal. And so they are exempted from um, the use of upload filters. And then as soon as it's 16 seconds, it gets blocked. So uh, both sides of the debate are upset about this, because um, users say, well, there are lots of legal artistic users that use more than 15 seconds. What about them? The directive says that legal content has to stay online but this law doesn't actually um, manage that. And on the other hand, you have the music industry saying, well, there are lots of copyright infringements that are shorter than 15 seconds, (laughs) Uh, but the directive says that uh, copyright infringements should be blocked. So basically, the German government is now learning that what the EU has adopted is simply not possible. And I feel like they're trying to, to find a compromise, but every compromise on these issues of freedom of expression is going to be um, really dissatisfactory to all parties, I think.
1: Well, I suppose it's about the the idea as well of fairness that's kind of in copyright law. You know, you're having to think about what might be fair. And that isn't, you know, just say in 15 seconds. Well, it's not underpinned. It's it's not
0: underpinned by... by, um calculations, is it? By, by, yeah, I mean, can you, yeah. can you program a fairness algorithm? I mean, is yeah, it possible?
2: You can't. Um, I mean, so if you look at what uh, upload filters actually do, um, so some platforms already have them, like YouTube has content ID, and there are also some um, commercial uh, providers of filtering software. Usually, they're not even artificial intelligence. Basically, what they do is... Um, they they match patterns. For example, they, they um, analyze the melody in a uh, recording and then compare the pitch and the frequency of the melody to other recordings and try to see whether it's the same or not. And um, obviously, the shorter those uh, parts of recordings are, the higher the chance that there might be a false positive. Mm-hmm. So you could... Um, justify the 15-second rule from that perspective to say, well, if it's shorter than 15 seconds, the filtering software is just not accurate enough. And I mean, the law is not saying that those short snippets are legal. Unfortunately, I would say it's just saying that they can't be blocked automatically by an upload filter. Um, So there is, I would say, some logic behind it, but you're absolutely right um, that An upload filter, even if it did use artificial intelligence, would never be able to develop a sense of humor and distinguish between a legal parody and a copyright infringement, or even quotation. Uh, The quotation exception doesn't depend on how many seconds you use, Mm. but more how many seconds you need in order to criticize something, for
0: example.
1: Maybe eventually that's something AI can program for, but I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) No, no, no.
0: So, so can I just ask where we are at the moment with Article 17 and it being um, uh, put into each of the member states' law? I mean, are we looking at a situation where member states might actually come up with different legislative solutions which are incompatible with each other, meaning that any internet service that is operating across the EU kind of will have to pick either separated out by territory or just come up with the lowest common denominator, which does the most, presumably the most restrictive of all of those laws.
2: I think that is almost certainly going to be the outcome that we're going to have legal fragmentation. And to some extent, I think this is the fault of the legislator because, um Unlike what academics recommended, the EU did not introduce a European copyright law. And it's not, I think, because people in Brussels didn't want to, but rather that a lot of member states didn't want to give uh, that much, give up that much control about their cultural policy. And so it's a directive, which means that every member state has to uh, regulate the details in their national law. So it's sort of already... Um, part of the the legal instrument that you're going to have this fragmentation which is ironic because it's the directive on the digital single market so the whole justification for having the directive was to make cross-border trade easier and it's not doing that at least not in the case of article 17. I think another reason is also because the European Commission, which was supposed to publish a guidance on how member states should implement Article 17, hasn't done so yet. And um, at this point, it's just too late for member states to really take it into account because they have to implement the directive by June 2021. So even if the European Commission came out with the guidance tomorrow tomorrow, that wouldn't leave enough time for, for the national ministries to to really take it into account. So all we have is a draft um, that was published, uh, I think, six months ago or so, where the commission basically introduced some, some basic thoughts about how it should be implemented. And uh, the German proposal is more or less based on that. There's quite a similar proposal from Austria, but there are also countries who have gone in a completely different directive. Uh, direction. So, I don't so, think we're going to have like one implementation that covers the whole EU.
0: No, and and, and I think, and I should have mentioned before we started asking about this, or, or uh, just put a, a date on when we're talking because it, we are currently in April, at the end of April 2021. Um, but this is part of uh, an ongoing process where nation states and trading blocs have to. Come to terms with the fact that the internet is global and international. It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's something that we are in the in the process of of trying to work through, isn't it? We we've had in Australia face off between Google and the Australian government over the you know the the press publisher rights. That presumably is going to be happening elsewhere around the world. And these big tech companies operate on a global basis and have an enormous amount of influence. And are almost they're not in opposition to nation states, but it, it it challenges that whole concept of a nation state and the democratic process of how things are governed on behalf of the public, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think in the past, a lot of the um, platform companies have also just said, well, whatever we put online is uh, our economic decision. And um, so this is why, for example, YouTube already has an upload filter and it's very unclear what happens if your legal content gets blocked. Do you actually have a legal recourse against that? And this is one of the things that I'm working uh, on with the Society for Civil Rights, that we think that these... Platform companies have become so important for public discourse that uh, under certain circumstances they should be required to take fundamental rights into a consideration when uh, they apply their private rules. So just to, to give you a practical example that this isn't just about basically funny holiday videos and memes, but for example... Um, i recently had contact with uh, this organization of turkish uh, exile journalists in germany and so they are doing critical reporting on the erdogan regime in the turkish language on youtube and they're doing that because youtube is available in turkey and turkey is probably not going to block access to youtube because it's too popular so quite often where you have these um, somewhat autocratic regimes that crack down on journalists, uh, social media companies are sometimes the only way for those journalists to reach the audiences in those countries. So all of a sudden, these private companies have become super important for the exercise of freedom of the press. Um, And so in the case of these particular German journalists they started getting fake copyright claims on YouTube uh, through their upload filter system. And it turned out that these um, copyright claims were coming from TRT, which is uh, the state media company in Turkey. Um, and so I think there is reason to believe that uh, these weren't random mistakes, but rather that uh, the, the uh, Turkish media company was abusing the existence of the filtering system to get uh, these critical reporting blocked from YouTube. And there are more examples like this, but I think it shows that even if the entertainment industry that is uh, in favor of upload filters to a certain extent does not want these abuses, they may still happen. And so we need to take that into account um, when deciding whether we should have Systems like that, and also when deciding whether platforms should be required to um, to reinstate or to protect uh, legal expression on their own services.
0: Mm.
1: So we're getting into kind of some of the work that you're doing at the moment, which is such a fascinating area, and um, I think you recently or last year spent some time at Harvard, didn't you, at the Berkman Klein Institute. Could you tell us a bit about what you were doing there? Does it relate to um, your work in this area of, sort of civil liberties? and? Yeah,
2: um, so I did a, a fellowship at the Berkman Klein Center immediately after Uh, leaving the European Parliament because I decided not to run for re-election. I felt after the copyright reform, there's not going to be another big copyright reform at European level anytime soon. I didn't want to become a professional politician, but rather keep working on copyright. And so I took this opportunity to do the fellowship at the Berkman Klein Center to basically start with some research, to come up with um, the best strategy on how to continue to engage uh, on this topic. And I was interested in the Berkman Klein Center because they have really been at the forefront of this research around copyright enforcement and freedom of expression. Um,
1: yeah.
2: So the Berkman Klein Center runs uh, a database called the, the Lumen database. Um, this is basically a database of the copyright takedown requests that websites such as Google or Twitter receive. And um, they just uh, basically get voluntary data contributions from some of those companies. And unfortunately, it's incomplete. So Google, for example, sends them the takedown request for Google search, but not for YouTube for some reason. Mm-hmm. And But nevertheless, this is a super important tool for research and it has led to the uncovering of um, some of the abuses of copyright takedown notices. Um, So for example, there was a a really interesting investigation by the Wall Street Journal um, that was based on the Lumen database and that they found um, that there are these reputation management companies that you can hire uh, to clean up your Google search results. Um, So for example, if you're a corrupt politician and there are some Uh, reports in your local newspaper about some shady business you've been involved in. What they do is they create a blog, they copy and paste the article that you want to disappear, and then they backdate it to some date before the original was published. And then they send a takedown notice to Google saying we're the copyright holder in this article and you should remove uh, the original from the search results. And for a very long time, nobody noticed because Mm -hmm. Google was processing these notices automatically. And it was basically the combination of journalists and researchers going through this data that were able to, to find that this was happening. And eventually they presented the results to Google and they were able to reinstate the, the, the results. But, um, yeah, so it was sort of uh, engaging with the people running the Lumen project and um, trying to think about, OK, what kind of research do we need and what what can we do with the research in terms of litigation, in terms of policy change to make sure that uh, copyright cannot be used as a tool for censorship? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I so did, it, did you? Oh, sorry. I was
0: I was <laughs> just going to say you mentioned the word censorship. It was very, it, it, you know, we, we may reflect on the history of copyright and where it came from mm. and in some ways it was it, it, it in sort of classical uh, descriptions of 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 why copyright is a good thing uh, was because it moved away from state and religious censorship towards a model that put authors at the heart of the process and authors at the heart of the system so that you know they were the ones that were given these exclusive rights that would then incentivize creation of of new goods um or you know new information goods cultural goods um but we're seeing that 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 tension has has never gone away and now it's got this new dimension with the technological overlay in that there are lots of different people that can abuse this system or unintended consequences where bad things can happen um as a result of not having got that balance right Mm.
2: yeah i think that's true. I mean, there are some particularities to the copyright system that probably made sense at the time, but that are really uh, creating problems today. So, for example, um, the fact that you don't have to register your copyright was seen as like very important for the protection of authors when it was introduced. And it's part of the Berne Convention, so very old international copyright treaty. And at the time, the reasoning was that uh, basically... You should not um, create barriers to copyright protection, you know, that everybody who is capable of creating something should enjoy their copyright and should not have to go through a complicated process of registering the copyright and so on. But of course, today with the Internet, on the one hand, registration could be a lot easier than in a time when you would have to basically send a horse carriage um, and at the same time we have the problem that if a company like google receives a takedown request they actually have no way of knowing whether the information they receive is correct like somebody can just claim to be the copyright holder and there Mm. is no authoritative database that you can consult that tells you whether the claim is true and i think this is becoming increasingly a problem like if you have a trademark you can look up uh, who is the trademark holder but with a copyright Basically, I could paint a picture, send the picture to you by email, and then you could upload it to uh, Flickr, let's say. And according to the copyright directive, um, somehow Flickr would then have to try to get a license from me to be able to show that picture. But how, are, how is Flickr supposed to know that I'm the the mm-hmm. copyright holder and not you? It's just a difficult problem that has grown from from the history of copyright.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's been really great to have you involved in that in, in that process of, of of influencing the political outcomes is because you do take that research based academic approach. And I remember you saying that. that um, uh, in fact, we saw you talk and it was at the RSA. It was the day after the, the Brexit vote in the UK. Oh, and I remember <laughs> you saying you would normally take quite an academic approach. <laughs> um, but at that time, you felt that a, a political statement was was more what was needed. That um, was
2: the, probably the hardest speech I ever had to give because uh, I I think... Everybody in the academic field probably thought that the Brexit referendum was going to go the other way. And yeah. so I was sitting there, you know, very early in the morning, uh, frantically rewriting my speech and trying to, you know, uh, come up with some words of consolation to an audience that uh, was mostly academics who are extremely affected by Brexit because uh, the the research landscape is so international and uh, so much dependent on EU funding and EU collaboration. So that was really hard and Mm -hmm. a very strange... Conference.
1: It was a very, it was a very strange day. You have, you have mentioned a couple of times, um sort of academics in the field of of copyright, and uh, we were wondering, you know, if you wanted to name check any of the people in the kind of copyright world that inspired you. Um, you, you know, we and we would them...
0: also, we would also like to play our jingle I was gonna for say, our copyright call,
1: heroes, we, wouldn't we? We call them copyright heroes.
0: So have a think about that while we play our jingle. All right. <laughs> When we're starting out and in our time of need Their wisdom, grace and eloquence inspires us to succeed They're the people who we work with who brighten up our day and validate our pedantry, and send us on our way. There are copyright heroes. That's brilliant. Did, did you
1: record that? <laughs> yes, it's a parody. It's a parody. Amazing. <laughs> That's you no, know, it's an original piece of work. It's word, original. Right?
0: Yes, well, or or is it? Anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Possibly inspired by something else, but uh, yeah. Yeah, copyright heroes. So, Julia, right. I mean... Oh, yeah. there are so many. Um, okay,
2: starting sort of with the academics, um, I think while I was in Parliament, um, there was sort of a group of academics that got really involved, like writing position papers and also writing to members of Parliament. And... um I remember that. Uh, so, from the UK, for example, Martin Kretschmer and, and Lionel Bentley were really engaged with that and really trying to explain basic concepts of copyright to policymakers, which is so invaluable. And um, in France, so my, my French colleagues were always quite copyright maximalist. And so, uh, Severine Dussoyer, for example, Uh, was really helpful in also explaining the value of copyright exceptions um, to people. And perhaps a little bit more recently, um, there is now a case before the European Court of Justice about whether upload filters are compatible with the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And um, even though this court case came about sort of haphazardly, and I think uh, perhaps not all the arguments that should have been made were included in in the court complaint. A lot of academics have done really the hard work of of laying out the the broader argument in the meantime. And uh, so there are Martin Husovec and uh, Joao Quintaes who have written a lot about how users' rights need to be protected in the implementation of Article 17, and also making very important arguments about uh, why. Article 17 should probably be struck down by the European Court of Justice, um, and also uh, Christ- Christoph Geiger has gotten involved in that debate. So lots of academics um, that that yeah uh, that have really had an impact on my work and who I've learned from in the last couple of years.
1: Okay, no, that's uh, that, that's great and. We have uh, done a, a copyright waffle with uh, Lionel Bentley, but we've got we'll line up a few more of those people I think to talk right. to in the future. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Definitely, we should we should try and grab Martin Kretschmer, uh, Chris. Oh, I for think. sure,
0: for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, um, in your in your time working with copyright, uh, I'm sure that you've come across uh, quite a lot of interesting facts, things that have struck you as. Um, perhaps interesting to someone who isn't a, a huge copyright geek. So this is where we we like to say to people: imagine you're at a dinner party and the topic gets onto copyright. Um, how do you how do you dazzle people with an, something something that, that's interesting or, or or you think engaging?
2: Right. Uh, so one of my favourite copyright anecdotes is about copyright in space. Um. Ah. <laughs> So I don't know if you remember when uh, the Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield was on the International Space Station. And he started recording some music and sending it home. And people asked him, oh, you should do Space Oddity by David Bowie. And he was like, no, the astronaut dies in the end. Like, that's not a great (laughs) idea. But they ended up changing it a little bit. And so he did this cover version on the International Space Station. And uh, so the really difficult problem came up. Like I mentioned earlier, copyright is territorial. So whether or not you're allowed to, to make changes to a copyrighted work and to what extent depends on the country that you're in. So which country are you in when you're in on the International Space Station? Um, so the space station um, re- rotates around the Earth uh, within like 90 minutes or something, I think. So basically, it wouldn't be very helpful to try to basically look look down and see <laughs> which country you, you were <laughs> Like, that's not going to work. So uh, luckily, uh, the there are space lawyers, mm-hmm. and the space lawyers actually wisely agreed when the International Space Station was built on jurisdiction. And so what they came up with is that... Um, the different modules of the space station are built by different countries. And so whatever module you're in, uh, that copyright law applies, which is bizarre and ridiculous. (laughs) like, If you look at the music video of Chris Hadfield sort of recording in different parts of the space station, it would have gotten really complicated. But um, it turns out, apparently, he did the recording in a Canadian module, so Canadian copyright law applied and uh, then some musicians on earth actually contributed music to it. So it ended up getting very, very complicated and uh, luckily David Bowie himself was really a fan of the project. So they managed to get it on YouTube, but only under a one year license. And then unfortunately, after a year, it was temporarily offline why they had to renegotiate the contract. And it's kind of bizarre because on the radio, it's very simple. you know, like you don't mm-hmm. have to ask permission to do a cover version. Um, there, there are sort of international collective licensing arrangements that make sure okay, that some payment gets made to um, to the original offer, but basically you just do your cover version, it gets played and it's not a big deal. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a simple solution like that for youtube but maybe we should have like instead of talking about upload filters and all of that maybe we should just come up with some sort of mandatory collective management like we have for the radio at least for those big platforms that actually have a lot of music
1: yeah yeah Yeah. And and for when we're out in space as well i think you know it's it's it looking to the future isn't it future proofing copyright i think i mean who knew there was such a thing as a space lawyer when when, <laughs> when when i was when i was like looking to go to university my dad was oh you should go and study law i was like i don't want to study law but if someone had told me you could study space law
2: i think maybe it's for the people who really want to be astronauts but then don't pass the physical exam yeah, you could yeah. still be
1: a space lawyer <laughs> yeah yeah that okay. was
0: such, it was such a good video. That was, I remember seeing it at the time. And I, I think it's, it's a really good example of how- um, Is it still around? In, can we put it in the, can we I, in the Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll definitely link it. Earlier,
2: it's still there. It was uh, unavailable temporarily, but un- they were able to sort it out, luckily.
0: But it's an yeah. example of how culture um, t- does actually bring people together. That, that it's, uh, you know, we all know that song um and the fact i just it it blew my mind the fact that he was playing the guitar and singing on the, on space station in space you know right. it, it was just fantastic yeah so, it's, no, that's it's a, a wonderful
2: story. video and he's a really good performer too like i was i was surprised that you know not only is he an astronaut but he's also a really good musician
0: yeah and, and a great uh, communicator and educator. We should maybe we'd see if we could track down Chris Hadfield.
1: Yeah for, um, oh, yes so. <laughs> we should bring him on the podcast It'll absolutely absolutely. And
0: may God's love be with you. This is Ground control to me. Your you've really made the grave and the papers want to know whose shirts
1: you wear. But it's time to Okay, is it time for another jingle? Copyright
0: news, copyright 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 news, copyright.
1: Okay, well, we've been talking about quite a lot of, um, you know, really current issues, I think, related to the DSM, um, Julia, but just wondered really what, whether there's anything, you know, that sort of is, is, uh, you know, really kind of copyright news related that you could share with our listeners um, at this point in the podcast. Sure. So aside from all the drama
2: around uh, the copyright directive, so there's, the implementation, there is the court case. Um, There's also some debate at the European Parliament about whether there should be a new legislation to protect um, sports events in particular. So, like, uh, sports organizations like Premier League want to have, like, automated takedowns of, uh, of sports content. And I find this really bizarre because actually, I mean, probably some football fans might argue about that, but... I think uh, uh, football games, you know, are not protected by copyright. Um, it's It's just the the video recordings that broadcasting stations might make. And so I'm wondering like why there should be a special treatment for this one uh, particular type of event when there is already a protection in um, uh, in the broadcasting uh organizations uh, materials so that is something that is sort of going on the european parliament adopted a report on it personally i don't think it's a very good idea um and it's probably just that uh, there's a lot of money behind it i don't know if you uh had uh any debate about the whole super league thing but i think it was like a a similar situation where perhaps the interests uh of um Basically, the people making money off sports might not say, be the big, same big, as big, football Yeah, fans.
1: yeah, yeah, big businesses. I it, mean, it
0: didn't go down particularly well, the, the yeah. Super League idea. No. <laughs> so hopefully,
2: hopefully cracking down on, uh, you know, little snippets of showing a football uh, goal or something like that, hopefully is not going to go very well either. I mean, there are other sports that are a lot more permissive, like mm. uh, the NBA basketball they basically allow people uh you know to be a little a little bit more liberal with using the content in a creative way, and I think it actually um, you know helps bring the fan community together, so it's a shame that the football uh, it's
1: just so much about money isn't it now it's so much and you know it's it, it feels to me like that's what it's all become skewed against you know getting the rights to show certain football matches on channels and you know it's it's you know it it, it does seem to have got out of all proportion I think in that in right. that particular sport but um right. yeah
2: yeah Thinking of other copyright news, so uh, Comunia Association is turning 10 years old uh, Ah. in just uh, a couple of months, I think. So they've been doing a lot for the public domain, and I think that's still such an important topic, you know, because um, there are going to be a lot of new rules about um, uh, how you will be able to reuse works that are out of commerce. And so this is a topic that Comunia has been super active on, and so I'm really looking forward to to their birthday. Yeah, uh, I think have it's a party. in June. I think they're going to have a party. Yeah, yeah we've
1: they been to one it, of their parties, haven't we?
0: Haven't <laughs> we? Uh, yeah, they made an excellent jigsaw puzzle, didn't they? I think that right, you, yeah. you you had a the one with the the, the, the map of Europe on it, which it was so very much it, so much of it was the white. Out, out a bit. It was. It took a very long time. To the white make... art
2: was uh, very difficult. I remember that. I also have a funny story about that puzzle because um, when so it ended up on a German uh, news show because they always like to have you know uh, symbolism. So they yeah. showed this this puzzle, and I think at some point they took out the puzzle pieces. Uh, that covered the UK to to have like a, a picture symbolizing Brexit. Um, very sad. Oh,
1: I was going to say that's not funny. No, <laughs> um, just the, the the
2: the. I guess the funny part is just that this uh, humble puzzle made it to German yes. TV news. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, it
0: made it all the way there. Um, yeah. So that uh, the one thing I I am interested in getting your take on is is with talked about that process of of putting laws through and you have different organizations civil society organizations representing these interests like like communia um but in order to actually get things to go through there is a process isn't there of of working out which groups have uh and which parties political parties have common interests um and and copyright is is one of these things that correct me if if i'm wrong but it doesn't necessarily neatly fall into sort of left wing right wing um ideologies that 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 this question kind of and how copyright you know the, the issues that the the presented by copyright law manifest themselves in different ways when thinking about different parts of the copyright system so is that something that you've kind of experienced where you're you know in in your in your role as an mep you would be perhaps making some interesting alliances with other groups to to get some of this stuff uh, to be considered.
2: Yeah, I think that is absolutely true. So just looking at uh, my colleagues from the UK, I actually worked very well together with uh, one MEP from Labour and then another MEP from the Tories. And I think it was a lot less about uh, party politics, and it was more about their personal backgrounds and experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of them is uh, Catherine Styler, who is now the CEO of Creative Commons. So she's yes. really become, you know, a, a big uh, fighter for, for um, access to knowledge and culture and uh, certainly one of my copyright heroes as well. Um, And I think in her case, it had a lot to do with coming from the academic uh, field, so like uh, the university sector, um, where you just see firsthand a lot of the issues with uh, the way that the copyright system works and also seeing the value of libraries um, and, uh, you know, having some flexibility in the copyright system. And so in the case of the Tories, I I work quite well together with Dan Dalton, who uh, used to be... A professional cricket player and was kind of upset not to be able to watch the cricket from brussels so sometimes it's just uh you know uh
1: We're back to being able, licensing.
2: <laughs> yeah being able to find something that people are already interested in i mean for me it's the same you know it was sort of my personal experience in my life before Parliament yes. that yes. that got me interested in copyright law so i think it's always important to get to know the individual politicians that you're working with and rather than trying to put them in a box and uh, say, "Okay, you belong to this party, therefore this must be what you believe. I mean, there are certainly, you know, racists and fascists that I don't work with regardless of what their views on copyright might be. Mm. But I think within the spectrum of Democratic parties, you might find uh, allies in unexpected places. It's interesting. Inter- yeah.
0: It's it's something I was reflecting on reading. Um, I don't know if you've read uh, Yuval Noah Harari, any of his books. Um, and the most recent one is the 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which I is haven't... a it, it's I, I think you would really enjoy it. It's a it's a really good um, setting out all the challenges we face um, as a species and the planet. So it's, it's looking very far ahead. It's saying, you know, we've got this major um, major issues around information technology and biotechnology, how do we deal with AI, all the questions that are being asked at the moment. And he, he points out these these things that we fall back on, the stories, the ideas, traditional ideas of, of democracy and democratic um, and, and, and the different types of party politics and nation states. These things, you know, they're not going to help us unless they reform, unless they change. And here's the reality of, you know, the way in which uh humans make sense of things. Um so I, I, I that's my recommendation.
1: Thanks. <laughs> I'll check it out. <laughs>
0: uh, but it also leads
1: <laughs> there we go. But
0: it also leads on to my next question, which is where you go to stay up to date um with with questions around copyright, around fundamental rights, about some of these big questions.
2: Right. Um, so I feel this is a, an area where the blogosphere is actually uh, still alive and well. I mean, um, as you may know, the legal field is not very good at open access publishing, unfortunately. So actually quite a lot of the sort of academic uh, discussion on copyright is still happening behind a paywall and not being affiliated with the university. I don't have access to it, at least uh, not through legal means. So I actually read a lot of um, sort of academic copyright or fundamental rights blogs. I think mm. for for these issues around copyright and fundamental rights, certainly the Kluwer Copyright Blog and uh, Verfassungsblog in Germany uh, are very important, but Verfassungsblog also has some articles in English by now. Um, And yeah, I've also contributed uh, to both of them. I think Comunia is certainly the best news source for following the implementation of the DSM copyright directive. And um, aside from that, I actually still get a lot of links through Twitter because I just follow so many copyright geeks that, uh, yeah, that is just an important source of information for me.
1: That's really that's really excellent. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes um, Twitter I find is just an amazing source, as you say. If you have following the right people, I mean, you know, I, I I find I might get an email a couple of days later, or I might pick something up through another means. But there is some stuff that it's just so good for you know reports and things that have just come out of some of the big research centers at this events at the moment that's the one thing as well I'm picking up so many copyright events that now it's so much easier to attend as well that we can they're on zoom we can all, we can join them remotely I've actually got a a more important question, actually, Julia, that we like to finish on. It's it's probably the most profound question um, of of, uh, this actually really fascinating, wide-ranging discussion. It is is about the the really, really contentious issue of cakes. Right, whether they're copyright protected. No, it's just whether you have a favourite one. And whether you'd like to share that with us. Sure. We, we, we used to go along and see people in, in previous times and take them cake as well. Um, but do oh, you, I do wish you have... we could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite cake?
2: Um, This is probably going to sound really boring, but I very much like banana bread. Um, It's... <sighs> great because it's very easy to make vegan you know because the banana really substitutes well for eggs Absolutely. and it's just really tasty so i guess that would be my favorite very simple but great that,
1: that's that is actually one that we quite often used to take to people didn't it we is. Yeah. yes yeah. so we will bear that. you're a, you're a vegan as well so we'll...
2: for the most part like i okay. i i do my best yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. not gonna uh you know check the label of everything but uh yeah
1: We're just we're just making some notes. So, you know, next time we see you, we'll be there with with the banana bread for you. So wonderful. I really look (laughs) forward to that.
0: But one of the uh, one of the traditional German cakes wouldn't do well with all that whipped cream. There,
2: Yeah, Schwarzwälder Kirsch (laughs) might be tricky to do vegan. (laughs) I'm sure it's been done. I'm
0: sure it's possible.
1: Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah well thank you so much for giving up so much of your time to talk to us um this afternoon this evening so it's just been absolutely fascinating really you know interesting to get your perspective on all aspects of you know how you got into copyright your work um, in the european parliament your work now as well which is just so important it's, yeah, yeah, thank
2: you. Thank you for indulging me. I mean, it is my favorite topic in the whole world. So I could talk about it for hours, but then probably listeners would get very bored. So
0: <laughs> Not our listeners. They're copyright no. mad as well. So yeah. uh, you're in the right place. Yeah. But thank you very much. And we will definitely stay in touch um, and perhaps check in at a later date when when things have moved on a bit. Sure.
2: My pleasure.
1: my muscle